Hey everybody, it's Antonio and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen and on this week's podcast I sit down with Claude Belil, one of my old softball teammates. Amazingly enough, we don't talk about softball at all. I'm talking to him about his art. He is a painter, a drawer, an illustrator, and this is all something that he picked up pretty much late in life as he was approaching retirement, decided that uh, he wanted to throw all his energy into his art, and he's created some beautiful works. He's featured at a gallery based out of the Nepean Sportsplex, so I don't think you'll be seeing it unless you're going there to get vaccinated anytime soon. But I'm going to post a link in the show description so you can look at some of his works, which I think look amazing. And we talk about where he gets his inspiration, his passion, how he got into this. We talk about color. We talk about a lot of fun things that you should listen to. And if not, well, who cares if you listen? to save her before i mean you get to see my wd-40 and your wd-40 shoe shines i got some lighter fluid over there and there got a little lamp oh you know you gotta be prepared for i mean right now we're dealing with a virus but there could be another rolling blackout maybe we lose power for a few months at a time like what are you gonna do i have a lamp just like that in one of my paintings was it this it wasn't this particular lamp you weren't painting one of my still life were you (laughs) no i have not been in your basement (laughs) i appreciate that i mean you're always welcome but since you've never been invited over that would be a little creepy yeah it would be a little creepy how are you i'm i'm doing well i'm doing well it's a beautiful day outside um you know life is reasonably well during these precarious times right i think uh you always have to put an asterisk next to when you're saying you're doing good or things are all right. It's the best that I can uh, expect uh, under the circumstances. Yeah. And maybe by, maybe by the end of fall, we'll be able to play softball again or something like that. I am just so happy that I retired early enough to be able to be at home and enjoy myself in my activities as an artist. Uh, you know, as opposed to having to go to work, uh, you know, and I can't think of, uh, of course, having gone through, you know, two or three careers, one with Bill Canada, one with the federal government um, in office jobs, just trying to think of how to deal with all of that, all the COVID issues these days. Well, my wife's at SSC, and the one thing I can tell you about the civil servants is that you'd probably be still working on the same kitchen table, just connected to a VPN. That seems to be the way that the whole civil service is going right now. I know, but I had, uh, I, I was uh, interacting with a lot of people on a yeah. daily basis, you know. Which nowadays means you're in a hundred Microsoft Teams meetings. Yeah, right? And I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not crazy for that. I don't go on the computer very often, and, you know, only when I have to. That's a good attitude to have. I find that the tablets and zooms. Well, I naturally have to be on the computer to do most of what I do as a lawyer and also as a podcaster and just just in general. I spend an inordinate amount of time in front of a screen and it kind of 
you feel like it distracts you from more important things. But at the same time, you kind of feel lost, like you, you've lost a limb when you put away the laptop or the smartphone. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're, uh, you're fortunate in that regards. Uh, there is a little bit of lag. Eh? I don't know if you uh, pick that oh. up on. Right? So I hope it's not on my end. Uh, I know I, sometimes I, when I use a tablet. I don't hear any lag. Like you mean like my my videos behind my voice? Uh, no, actually, your voice and video. Your video stops for a minute, and then your voice sort of. So hopefully, it's only on my end. Unfortunately, using the tablet. Well, I mean, I think this should be fine. Like I said, the the end result podcast is going to be audio only. And I have a guy now, so uh, he can uh, go in at the end and uh, make sure that everything, he he chops up the dead space so everything's nice and tight. People will think we're just speaking at a very rapid fire rate, which is fine. So, so what are your plans, Antonio? Are you... You're a lawyer, right? That's, I mean, you know, I dabble. I do a little bit here and there. I, I closed down my practice um, a few months ago. It was just, there were a couple of really slow months, and then I just didn't have the desire to, um, you know, try to drum up business and network and act like everything was A-OK normal during uh, during lockdown times. And I ended up taking a job um in-house with uh with an insurance company so i'm gonna be starting there in uh what are we 14th in two weeks oh congratulations thank you this is like my spring break before i i start the next chapter all right you know i mean i needed i needed a change of pace i think especially right now i i think there's really a drive for people to kind of want to have a change of pace and just a change of lifestyle and things like that I don't know. I don't know if that's your experience or not, or if things have kind of been on the steady for you. Yeah. Uh, I swear. Uh, what I keep telling people is uh, retire early, retire as soon as you can plan for it. Uh, because ever since I retired, which was May, 2019. So two years ago, roughly. Okay. Uh I have never been so bloody busy. <laughs> it's just like it, 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 it used to be, I would uh, get up, jump on the bike, uh, you know, ride for 45, 50 minutes, go to work and then jump on the bike to come back, you know, and as I'm on the, my ride back, then I would sort of work out whatever issues there were uh, at work and then clear my mind. And by the time I got home at, at dinner but that was so routine and there was never any planning for other stuff other than maybe doing a little bit of drawing at nighttime once in a while. But it was like, how should I say? Not, I wasn't involved in it, you know, like I, I, I always gave hundred percent of work, but ever since I'm retired, it's like, holy shit. Now it's 24 seven. I got a, a list. That's of- a good, that's a good kind of business. That's a good kind of busy to have, isn't it? <laughs> well, you're damn right, because it's all my business, right, that I'm dealing with. And uh, as you know, I, I'm an artist now. I only work in colored pencils, and I, I haven't done my 10,000 hours as, as an artist. So I am so busy learning things, reading about color, 
color theory, uh, artists, um, just the physics of color, just trying to understand it all. And and the more you, the more you understand or try to understand, the more it's the answers aren't there. Yeah, like just what is color? The basic questions: What is color? I, I sometimes I work my way into rat holes just trying to understand what color is. Well, I heard a physicist somewhere on the internet say the color purple doesn't even exist. Apparently, that is completely a figment of our imagination that our brain just manages to fill in reddish blue hues without with the absence of green, and that somehow we've managed to just kind of piece it together. But there's no such actual color on the light spectrum as purple. Well, purple, violet, as many colors as you yourself can see. <clears throat> and every one of us has uh, different perceptions of colors. And, you know, I've, uh, reading about the physics about it, uh, just what makes up your eye, what, how light gets into your eye. You know, in the in the in the very old days, you know, Greek or pre-Greek times, they used to think that your ray, your eyes emitted rays, that and that's how you were able to see. <laughs> and so you're telling me that's not the case anymore. <laughs> no, Superman doesn't exist. I'm sorry. Oh, geez. Uh, and then and then somebody says, you know, uh, I forget which one of the Greeks uh, that said. Uh, no, it's it goes both ways, right? And that made a lot of people happy. And then finally, I think it was uh, Aristotle or, or, or Archimedes, one of them said, no, in fact, you know, your, your eyes don't emit anything. Everything comes into your eyes. But then you, you start to say, okay, well, what's, what is light, right? It's electromagnetic rays of some kind that come into your eyeballs. Nobody still to this day, nobody understands how light, uh, turns into color and the color turns into something that your brain can understand. I was watching a, I was watching a documentary on TVO and I've been watching a lot of TVO cause I don't have cable, but there was this documentary all about the human eye and they're talking about like prosthetics that they're giving people their sight back or like all these different, uh, things like professional athletes actually strengthening their visual cortex so they can react faster and things like that. And they had this woman who apparently has a genetic mutation where the average human has three of some kind of receptor that measures different wavelengths of light that create color. The you and I, assuming that you don't have any color blindness or any defect, can see about a million different hues. But this one woman, who as luck would have it, also happens to be a visual artist, like they put her through a whole battery of tests to confirm that she actually has a fourth receptor. And this is like, this happens, apparently it only happens in women of Northern European origin. Like it's just a very, very recent mutation. She can see like a hundred billion different colors. And now she's made it her mission to try. I was just saying she made it her mission now to try and go and show people what she sees through trying to expand her palette and do her paintings and things like that. Um, she better do it quickly because the latest studies are demonstrating that uh, almost half of women 
have that four, um, the, the, those little cones within yeah. their eyes, which for you and I, the lesson is don't argue with your wife. <laughs> if she tells you something is a color, okay, she's probably more right than you are. So don't argue with them. It, it is interesting, though, when you think about the fact that, like, I mean, okay, that most of human history, it seems like we've just kind of celebrated the uh, the works of men. But, like, off the top of my head, outside of Georgia O'Keeffe, I can't think of a single female illustrator or artist of, of, of you know, history. And you kind of wonder, like, would it be, would we have had much more rich sort of woven technicolor stuff if that had been the case? Like, we can only see what we can see and then somebody's painting based on that right but only you can see what you can see right so it wouldn't make a difference to me so who cares <laughs> <laughs> always always remember that and the reason the reason i say it that way is because you know again we just talked about the ability to see colors but also uh, because your brain is is just basically electrical conduits banging around in there um you know everybody's brain is wired differently so uh, your perception of something uh especially colors um is quite different you know we know getting back to that discussion without getting too technical we know we know those four sort of cones that are that some women have most of us most of the population only have three. And by the way, the reason it's Northern European, it's uh, because they believe it's the um, uh, Neanderthal influence crossbreeding that created that within. I have I have a background in music. I don't really understand most of this pseudoscience stuff I'm espousing. So, I mean, I that sounds like the most plausible explanation. But with my luck, I'll have somebody with like a PhD in biology telling us how we're completely wrong. That's usually how things work with me on the internet. Well, music is like a uh, color. Uh, you know, very they're very closely associated, right? Newton, when he went through his prism uh, experiments, and he came out and he said there were seven colors out of his prism, right? Okay. There were seven colors. Why Why seven colors? The diatonic scale. Was was a musician, and he said, do <laughs> so lusty, right? So it was just a solfege, and he figured it out that way. So, so he said, okay, you know, he looked at the prism and he said, okay, I've got to, I've got to sort these out into seven items. Uh, well, it didn't have to be seven items. He just chose seven. But anyways, thank God we have uh, Newton and his prisms. Else we never would have had the, uh, the album cover for Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's, that's pre pretty important. I, I've seen it. That's pretty much all I could tell you about Pink Floyd. I don't really know much about their music. It's uh, a bit before my time there. Hello, Antonio. I thought you were a musician. You have a you have your organ playing a beginning and end. Yeah, I love I love I love stuff from the 18th century, the 19th century. But like you know, those kind of dinosaur rock bands, it's that doesn't do much for me. 
Oh my goodness. Well, you're speaking to a dinosaur today who doesn't understand a lot of things about color and uh, well, you're talking about color and music, and I and I and I love talking about synesthesia. That's a topic that I've always kind of been very skeptical about. I mean, whether or not somebody can actually um see different timbres and sounds and things like that. So I mean that's about as close as kind of music and color ever get. You get sort of crazy people like Scriabin that tried to create um color organs where you would actually play these instruments and different colors would appear uh, as a result of your playing. So you know it's not a kind of straight linear relationship, but it's it's fun to think about the different ways that uh, that they might intersect between each other. But I feel like we're 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 diverting. I really want to talk about your art specifically and the kind of stuff that you've been doing. So, how long have you been drawing and painting for? Uh, hang on. So, just because uh, you threw in synesthesia, and that's uh, I belong to a, a, a gallery, the Foyer Gallery, which is out of the Sportsplex. And one of our <laughs> artists uh, has that condition. Yeah. And it is incredible to talk to her uh, because when she is trying to imagine a piece, I'm just trying to envision how that works. I just, how do you even figure out what a color is? How do you even know that a, a tree is green or the branch is brown or whatever? So a lot of people are colorblind or have some uh, degrees of colorblindness, but that is different than synesthesia, right? Synesthesia is you will hear music and a color will come into your head. Or uh, you are looking at a color and, and you've associated not the color doesn't come in your head, words come into your head. So again, when, when, when I say at the beginning, we said, you know, we don't understand how color gets translated into your brain. For her, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those, those, you know, cones of, of sensitivity electrical electromagnetic sensitivity that it that are in her head translates the color into words right it's like it's bizarre it's totally bizarre there's so many things you know when you try to spend a lot of a bit of time reading about it it, it just it just confounds me right and i try it anyways I mean, my grand my grandfather is the painter in the family. I love I love looking at that stuff. I think we walked past your gallery before a few softball games. Uh, I guess it would have been two summers ago. So uh, you know, he's always been the visual artist in the family. But I just I I never could crack that nut myself. It was for whatever reason. I mean, call it the childhood trauma of him giving me lessons or just. A lack of innate talent. I just, I never managed to to make a go of it. I don't know. Like you must have, did you pick it up at an early age? You, you, you have to pick your battles, Antonio. You know, like you, you, you have your twins now, right? And yep. they're 
they are going to erase a good 15, if you're lucky, 20, if you're unlucky, years of your life. It's just going to go by like that, right? And then you'll wake up one day and you'll say, okay, now what do I have, right? And so the talent that you do have is the musical talent. The things that you will retire with, right, which if you're like me, you're hoping to have 35, 40 years of paid, you know, fully paid retirement. <laughs> oh, come on. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, one good friend called me this morning. She said her, her mother had passed away yesterday, 99 years old. Another one of, of uh, wow. I'm in a few study groups, uh, one with uh, MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York, and another one with University of Alberta. But one of the chaps, his mother passed away. She was 104 months old. Um, 100 years and four months old. Oh, sorry. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, my mom passed away. Uh, she was almost 99, less a month, right? So think about we're going to, you know, that's my generation. You're a generation below me. You'll probably live longer, hopefully. I'm, I'm hoping to get near the hundreds. So again, figure if you retire at 60, 65, you still have quite a few years there to uh, yeah. continue your lifelong journey of learning and, and exploration, whatever. So See, I'm hopelessly of, uh, cynical. So I remember that uh, my dad died when he was 68 and I'm 34 right now. So like I am but your right grandpa at the halfway right. mark. Your grandpa. Yeah. Grandpa's still around. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Grandpa's still around. I mean, grandma, God lover made it to 90. Yeah, and and uh, I'm I'm hoping I have my mom's genes uh, preponderantly uh, because my dad uh, he died I think it was seventy five or seventy six so you know, again and we don't know the reason why he passed away unfortunately so anyways uh, to get yeah. to answer your question Antonio my earliest one of my earliest childhood memories because my earliest childhood memory my siblings tell me. It, it, it couldn't have happened. So uh, we'll, we'll skip that one. Oh, well, you can't leave me on a cliffhanger like that. I have to hear what this is. <laughs> so I, I was born uh, uh, in a farm community north of Sudbury, right? Northwest of Sudbury. And, and we had a farm and we, have a, we had a barn, a stable, uh, you know, a house, uh, sort of a garage area. And uh, and uh, the uh, uh, one night, I remember it was nighttime, uh, the uh, barn uh, burnt down. And also uh, it went into the stables and everybody was, you know, was running around. You're, you're away on a farm, right? In the middle of nowhere. There's, there's no fire trucks or anything, and, you know. But remember, this is uh, early 1950s, right? Out in a farm in Boonsville, sure. so uh, everybody was working, getting the the, the horse out of the uh, of the uh, stable, the 
the cows, the chickens, right? Whatever uh, that we had, right? And uh, saw the the barn burn, right? And that's inscribed in my memory. Only that happened five years before I was born. So my, my siblings keep telling me I could not have, have seen that because it all was before I was born. And I keep saying, well, should I remember all that? And I describe it. And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you must have heard us talking about it when you were young. And it's like, okay, all right. But I have. That's some paranormal stuff. That's my working theory. So anyways, uh, I won't talk about. Well, I did just talk about that. So, memory. so what's your, what's your earliest real memory, Claude? <laughs> uh, uh, so we were, uh, my two older brothers and I, uh, shared a room in the, uh, in the house. Right. So I, I'm, uh, I have, uh, three brothers, four sisters were evenly made up four and four. Anyways, the, uh, uh, uh one night, my older brother, who's 11 and a half months older than I, uh, was sick. So he slept in the downstairs with the parents. And uh, somehow uh, I must have stolen a chalk or something from the school. Because in the morning when we woke up, I had drawn a sailboat on the wall <laughs> above my bed, which my mother, when she came to woke me up, said, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> so, I don't know. Anyways, that's I must have had something in me from very fairly early on. Uh, but of course, you know, you go to school, you have your adolescent years and all that nonsense and the university, and then you get married and have kids, start working. So I never really paid much attention to drawing. Uh, you know, I did uh, uh, watch. Uh, John Nagy's Learn to Draw, uh, which was one of the first uh, TV programs. It started in 1946, black and white, away you go within the 30-minute segment of, you know, with commercials, so less than 30 minutes. He would draw a full uh, pencil or uh, charcoal drawing. And, you know, I would do that. I never heard of him. Is he a Canadian guy? Was he like a local dude or who was that? Uh, I don't know where he hails from. John Nagy. Uh, John is J-O-N and Nagy is G-N-A. N-A-G-Y. That's my mom's last name. That's why I was asking. I'm sort of curious about that. G-N-A-G-Y? N-A-G-Y. Nagy. N-A-G-Y. Okay, well, his was G N A G Y. So G N A Ganagi. Yeah, well, I say Nagi, silent G. Okay, fair. Uh, anyways, you can look it up on the internet. They put his. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to take that a look. Okay. Uh, he, they put his old videos up on the. Uh, they call it videos, right? up on the internet. <laughs> yep. And I, I do the okay, same but this thing is something now. From, from way back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. 1946, they said, you know? so I was, I was born in 53. So uh, the, the, it's old stuff. Uh, but his, um, uh, if you, if you look at some of his things, his, he prepon preponderously works with lines, 
right? And and you get a drawing done, bang, you know, with a few lines and a few smearing of the charcoal and ch changing some of the values, the tones, done. Uh, and oddly enough, every uh, uh, Wednesday afternoon now, I do a session with a, a chap out of, I think it's Colorado, um, online. Uh, and there's people from all around the world who join us. And we do drawing, again, using either graphite or charcoal. But his uh, uh, method is without lines. So, you know, you sort of establish your composition and then smear the graphite or the, right? And then eventually, bang, you've got a, you've got a drawing done, right? So. Now, when you say without lines, like, you yeah, here, I'll, uh, I think, uh, can I share? I'll show you a picture. I, I yeah, if you want to, if you want to show me something, I might be able to get a screen grab of it and maybe throw some of your art in progress online if you'd like, but my computer is freezing up. I don't know if I can do that. Right. Well, uh, you haven't given me permission to share. Oh, is that what I have to do? Let me see here. I'm going to close some things that are misbehaving. All right. Do, do, do. Share screen. Multiple participants can share simultaneously. Lay it on me. Okay. So let's see if I can. So basically, we're here. Okay. So all of wow. that was drawn. So all, all of that is drawn without lines. Right. So you're basically. So what does that mean? So that it's just like haze of charcoal, and then you just kind of fudge the the lighting. Right, and you keep you keep adding charcoal, and you wipe it down, and you erase. You do a lot of subtractive stuff. Uh, obviously, where the folds of the cloth are, uh, there you're putting a little bit more uh, charcoal, uh, erasing, using a stump to you know smoothen the stuff out. Um, right, uh, for the that's beautiful. I'm <laughs> so, but it's it's working without lines, right? Because there are no lines in nature, that's what you sort of learn, right? Everything is fuzzy, everything has a sort of a edge to it, but not really lines. Everything has contours, but not really lines that define stuff, right? They say, especially for so, I guess the, the point of drawing without lines is really that you just have this kind of sense of this diffuseness that like everything kind of blends into everything else. And all you're really doing is showing the lighting itself. Right. Yeah. So this one that I'm showing up now is the, uh, what I'm working on now, which I've been working on for, um, three, four months, maybe five months, now, three months, three, three to five wow. months. Anyways, you know, it, it, it's hard to say because you, you start with the, Idea. Now there seems to be a lot of lines in there, especially around the uh, the item at the bottom. Uh, but it, yeah, I don't draw with lines, right? When you when you look at it, uh, it's more circles. You know, the pencil is always going in in tiny, tiny little circles. You're not you're not trying. You can't really see because I I have a tendency to uh, uh, blend. Uh, everything right. right and with colored pencils uh you go over 
all of the other services, right? So you, you, you'll go over another uh, object that you've already drawn, right, with a colored pencil. So there are no lines. You don't stop at the, at the edge of the, of the item, right? You just keep going and going and going. Of course, you, you do that with very, very light pressure. Okay. Uh, do you have a particular artistic sort of influence or artist that you look at as sort of, you know, those are the sort of style that I, I really want to get into? Because at least from those pictures and that, and especially that last one, I mean, if I was just glancing at it very casually through my laptop screen, and I'm not saying this as any kind of an ego boost, but that was like real photorealism. Like I, I could have mistaken that for a picture if I, if I was just kind of passing and then you can kind of see a little bit of the color diffuse. So like, do I get that sense that like you really that sort of romantic realism is kind of your uh, your your calling, or am I am I reading too much into the, the two drawings I'm looking at there? Well, I, I you've already qualified me as a dinosaur. So as a dinosaur, my <laughs> my my uh, uh, inspiration for art was is i guess basically pre-modern art as long as you and i let's understand what i mean by modern art modern art is uh, when you doing the studies and i've learned this you know ad nausea modern art basically started from uh the industrial age so everything before the industrial right. age right is whatever you want to call it <laughs> and never everything since the industrial age which is when people started having enough time and money and people moved into the cities in order to feed the factories and feed you know all the the stuff that was happening in the, the industrial age and there were much bigger houses and they lived together in these buildings and they wanted to throw shit on their walls so you know they they started getting art and art that didn't that didn't belong to the church anymore or the royalty or whatever. And so then people just went out and drew whatever they saw. And then, then you have the impressionists and the, uh, all of the modern art movements that started. So modern art is when ugly, as far as I'm concerned, crept into the art world, right? Pre-modern art, they, every, every artist, it was trying to do aesthetically beautiful material. Post the development of modern art, ugly creeps into it. Now, when I say ugly, again, I'm not, I'm not saying ugly as it's all bad, right? Ugly is beautiful, right? So you have to remember that, right? When, when you... When you talking to an artist, <laughs> you know, what the hell is he saying? Uh, ugly is beautiful, right? It, it just, it jars the eye. It has something different, whatever. It's not the same as before. But if you were to ask me what artistic style I would, obviously, if you look at my website, uh, what artistic style am I propounding? Well, I go with beauty, aesthetically pleasing, something that you can look at and and see that there was a little bit of beauty in there, right? Whether it's uh, flowers or dishes or you know, bridges or, or you know, 
I try to make it. I, uh, if I do portrait of somebody, I will make it a beautiful portrait. I will try to incorporate what as much as I understand of the person, but I try to make it a beautiful portrait. Right? I don't. I don't do the Picasso esque, uh, you know, Demoiselle d'Avignon type of portrait. Sure. Well, I mean, I read, I, I, I saw a documentary or I guess a biopic uh, film years ago about Paul Cezanne. And so that was kind of my, my, my foray into like that kind of late 19th century kind of like that, that, that artistic style that, you know, became impressionism or post-impressionism and modernism. And I know a little bit about it from music. And I guess the, the, the traditional line that I've received. And I, yeah, I mean, we're not, you know, it's one of those things where you're not supposed to call it ugly, but we all kind of know what it is when you hear it. But it's that idea that this aesthetically consonant, pleasing music kind of came to a very abrupt end sometime around the First World War. And the idea was music became very dark and jarring because people saw a lot of dark and jarring shit. And then they wanted to somehow you know, bring that out into their art. And so one of the things that, you know, for at least in my mind, kind of always made me very curious, speaking to someone who's a visual artist, like, okay, now we've been in lockdown of one form or another, and we can debate the politics of what is a lockdown, what isn't a lockdown. People have been stuck at home for over a year now. And I'm wondering, you know, at a certain point, does that change the, you know, does that change the art? Does that change the impetus to, to, to do a different aesthetic, to do something that is maybe a little uglier because, you know, there's those days when life feels like it's very ugly outside. Uh, but that, that, those feelings you can get, regardless if it's pandemic or not pandemic, if you're cooped up or not cooped up. But I will say the, uh, that uh, when, uh, I, I forget what it was, two or three months into the pandemic, I did do a, two or three very, uh, what I call dark uh, drawings. And if you go to my, on my website, you'll see a skull uh, that started out as a skull, but then it put on some real teeth and eyes. And it's like, there's the, the, COVID, you know, asking to eat you up. Uh, there's another one of a rhinoceros with a body flaying at the end of the horn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> those. Well, there you go. See, you're sort of. Those were the. the, the sort of quadrat demonstratum over there. You're proving my point. <laughs> Antonio, I, I always. Uh, uh, Believe what you're saying. You do have good points. So, yeah. and uh, uh, lately, I've I've done uh, uh, not lately. They're not done yet, but I've I, I've started a little project of uh, little uh, stories for kids um, with uh, characters from my childhood. Uh, yeah, you know, there there was the uh, Banam Setar. And you had to go to bed uh, you know, around seven or eight o'clock at night or else the Banam Setar would come and grab you, right? So I tried to do a sort of a dark Ooh. drawing of the Banam Setar, you know, which in French is Banam uh, is, uh, means um, 
the man of uh, at of seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. Yeah, the seven o'clock man. I guess you would say it in English, right? So the seven o'clock man will come and grab you if you don't go to bed. Right? So uh, off we went to bed. That's that's like some Grim Brothers level kind of creepy. Like I can picture it in like one of those nineteenth century wood carvings where he's like chasing you down with his claws type thing. Right, exactly. Well, that's what I have. I have a, a big hand. You know, you can barely see the bonum satire, almost like the video that you're showing there. But I have a hand very close to the screen, and the bonum satire is in the back with the crazy hair. So I'm just refining uh, those little drawings and stuff to scare the kids and trying to write up a little uh, personally ditty to go, go with it. Personally, I'd love a, a storybook like that. Like, if you had something like that, I would totally show it to my kids. I think the difficult part would be getting my wife on board. She's very much against like the the fear-based parenting, although there's some days when they need to get upstairs at seven o'clock and they don't want to. So, you know, it might uh might have to might have to keep that in the back pocket of the arsenal. Okay. So I'll I'll keep working on the book now that I know that I might have one client <laughs> for it. <laughs> the other uh sorry. I was just gonna say artistically like like how how does how does how does a storybook um differ kind of aesthetically from from the kind of drawings that you're doing like I'm thinking of most of the children's books and I've been reading a lot of children's books these days they they're the sort of the antithesis of that they all seem to have very 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 definite sharp clear lines it's like squiggle line drawing kind of Tex Avery type stuff uh no <laughs> the drawings are uh <clears throat> like i've been showing you right um okay not uh more like the uh you know the 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 stuff the pandemics the two or three silly things that i did when the pandemic was around uh, or not was around when it started the other uh the, the difficult part of it is the writing part right trying to write little stories about it because i'm not a writer so uh, just trying to trying to do those. Uh, the uh, there, there's another term in French which is called enfirwape. Uh, it's one word, enfirwape, and there's lots of ideas as to where that originated. But uh, one is uh, that the coureur uh, de bois used to, uh, you know, try to fool people. Uh, by um, uh, uh, you know, putting stuff in between the furs so they would weigh more. Um, and so it's like trying to fool some, somebody uh, about something. And, and uh, the English translation would be in fur wrapped. Right? So in fur wrapped. So it could be that that's where the, the French word came from. So again, I have a, a drawing of little kids that are <laughs> just the heads or hands or bo parts of bodies sticking out of a bunch of fur that's piled one on top of the other, right? And again, trying to come up with a story as to how they end up there by misbehaving. I'd volunteer myself to do some story writing if you wanted to do that, but I don't know if you'd want it in French. My French is like... At about grade four or grade five levels, I don't think that'd be passable. But if you're ever looking for some sort of a collab, you know, I'm uh, 
I can make myself available for something like that. Yeah, well, you can write in English. I can translate. <laughs> I, I know enough well, there you go. English to be able to translate. <laughs> yeah, there, I, there you go. This is true. And so there, you may be your, the author of your own children's nightmares. <laughs> That's what every father wants to hear, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, so now I, 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 have I given you a definition of uh, my style? You know, I'm, I, I like Vermeer. Uh, obviously, Da Vinci, I think, you know, they're, they're amazing, amazing artists. Uh, like uh, both of them, I guess. Uh, uh, It's months uh, to deliver, if not uh, years, you know, in order to be able to to create um, a work of art. So, uh, because I think you have uh, my, I've always been that you have to have work something out in detail. And, And unless something really pleases me, uh, and that I can compose something, uh, you know, I don't attempt it. So I keep thinking, tossing ideas around in my head and trying to make it really, really good. And, uh, then I'll just work at it. And like a dog with a bone, I will just chew on it until it's to my satisfaction. So it's, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about that I think is really interesting is, I mean, I know a lot of people that have kind of gotten into art in one form or another visual musical performative whatever they get into it late in life and you know it's a real expanded hobby they do classes they've got the gear they've got their easel they're out by the river they're you know capturing these scenes but like you you've even you've gone all the way to you you have a get you're you're part of a gallery i mean you've you've commissioned you've been commissioned to do works you've sold works i mean how do you you know, did that happen by accident or did you very deliberately go into this saying, you know what, I'm going to treat this kind of like a, like a, like a second career and I'm going to be very like laser minded on it. How did that, how did that happen? Um, uh, I think uh, as far as getting serious into it, it was like a, a year, two years uh, before retirement. I, uh, looked around the Ottawa area for somebody who I could uh, uh, respect uh, their works and then uh, would uh, give classes, uh, would teach people. So I did find somebody uh, and I had to wait over a year uh, before I could uh, become one of her students. Uh, And then uh, I I said, no, uh, when she she said, uh, do you want to... uh, be part of a class i said no <laughs> single instruction sorry i don't have any time to lose uh you know i need to learn as much as i can as fast as i can uh which is the same thing with uh you know my drawing materials as soon as i was able to understand the quality of paper because there is a lot of variety out there the, the mediums even in, in colored pencils there's bad colored pencils good colored pencils there is uh, colored pencils that are um, that are dilutable with water. There are oil-based colored pencils, wax-based colored pencils, right? And they all work differently. So, and, and then so as soon as I fixed on a medium, 
I went for the best quality that I could that to give me whatever I could. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, if you want an and a short answer, it's yes. I'm focusing very much on you know just doing what I like to do uh, with the best material, uh, with the best ideas, the best compositions, the stuff that I really like uh, to do. Uh, I will. I'm continuously trying to stretch the envelope, learn, uh, you know, with what I do. Uh, when I do a commission, it's like, okay, I, I just won't do redo the same thing. It's a, I, it's always something new, always, 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 always pushing the envelope. And then it's like, okay, uh, you can you can uh, buy it. If you don't buy it, that's fine. I'll keep it because I do stuff that pleases me, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm almost I always happy with what I do. Um, as far as a gallery goes, uh, you know, you have to compete. Uh, you have to submit your works uh, as far as galleries go. Uh, it's always interesting to start off uh, uh with uh, an evaluation of your works because you know you can think you're you're doing great stuff but it's always uh, at least for me comforting to know once some of your peers or future peers because you're not an artist yet you're just you know throwing stuff out uh but once your future peers uh bring you into the club sort of saying then you feel good about it right and then okay you've got the stamp there done right i've got my diploma i am an artist because i'm part of an artist group i've been juried done right now i don't have to worry about any of that stuff did you worry about that stuff before well you know like what am i doing am i just doodling and you know, nobody really cares about the stuff. So she, sure, friends and family will like what you're doing, but, you know, until you actually have somebody buy your stuff, uh, you know, that's where the, the uh, proof is in the pudding, I guess, <laughs> whatever the expression is, right? That's, you know, it's it, 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 there's somebody there that's, that's demonstrating that they like your stuff. So, uh and then uh, the rest of it, you know, doing the website, I, I was convinced, you know, everybody's got to have a website in order to sell your stuff. Well, I don't really paint stuff in order to sell it. I, I paint stuff because I like what I do, right? I choose the subjects that I like. So I, I spent a bit of time uh, building up a website. Is it necessary? I don't know. Uh, it's a lot of... Uh, pain and so i don't like going on there i will update it once every three four months or whatever right i don't do it very often so i'm not a good uh, online person now i want to catch i want to touch on something that you said there that i think is very interesting i'm kind of seeing this contrast where on the one hand you're, you're saying to me you know what i'm painting things that are meaningful to me i am painting things that i like that i want to do and so in the end, if, if there isn't a market for it, if nobody wants to buy it, you know what, I'm fine with that because that's something that that's meaningful to me. And that's something that, you know, that resonates with me too. I mean, there's a reason why my podcast is called Who Cares If You Listen? 
I, I did steal that from a modernist composer named Milton Babbitt, but the idea was, you know, if I want to create something that I find meaningful, I can't be in a position where I'm thinking, oh, you know, I got to have this person on as a guest because I'm going to get ratings that way. Or if I want to monetize this podcast, I've got to put out three episodes a week and I have to touch on this issue and that issue because that's really, that's what everybody is talking about right now. That's what's in the zeitgeist. I'm like, no, that's, that's a path to basically, you know, being flapping in the wind and doing whatever is popular in the moment. But then on the other side, you know, what, what you said and what, what I, what I feel at times too, is the idea that like, well, you know, what if I'm, what if I'm just doodling over here? Well, you know, if nobody's, if nobody buys any of my stuff, if I can't monetize this in some way, you know, does the experience of what I'm doing be somehow become painted or less meaningful? And, and, and I, and I, and I totally get that tension. I guess in all of that, what I'm thinking is, um, has there ever been a situation where, you know, you, you thought about an idea, you thought about something and maybe you changed the end product or you changed how it was put on paper because you thought it would be more interesting to other people or it would be more well-received than perhaps what you would have originally done, or has that never been a concern? Nope. Never change. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, people, and uh, Antonio, I'm at a point in life where I, I don't need to change. Right? Like I said, uh, even uh, you know, doing a portrait, okay, you know, halfway through, uh, you will decide if you like the composition of if you say yes, that's the composition, you know, the size and how the, you're placed or whatever. Off I go. Then you'll, you'll, you'll get the final product. You don't see the final product until I deliver it to you in there. Take it. If you don't like it, that's fine. I'll, I'll keep it, right? But if you like it, okay, right? But I will not change so it can- once I'm done. I'm the one who decides. So I guess to circle back on it, sorry, but I guess just to circle back on it, I mean, you know, I'm assuming you don't need this as like a pot boiler. It's not uh, keeping the landlord at bay with your paintings. I mean, at that point, why, why even sell them? Why even, why even go the gallery route? Exactly. Right. So my initial uh, gallery uh, introduction was uh, in order to get uh, vindication or you know the acceptance by peers right? or else you always yep. say well can i claim myself an artist if nobody has ever said diddly squat about my works if they've never been juried anywhere is that am i just a doodler or am i an artist so with that i was able to get my diploma if you want my university diploma and say okay i'm an artist right so now i call myself an artist i'm an artist but that that's done. But, but but before that, before that was that was the defining that was the defining line in the sand that once you got into that kind of gallery thing, you it was like I was a doodler and now it's like it's you know, in, in parlance for people my age, we call it Facebook official. You know, it's official now that I'm somehow become an artist. I've crossed the I've crossed the Rubicon. 
<laughs> okay, the dinosaur says, do not ever justify anything by using fake book. You know, I do not believe a word or picture in fake book. Uh, that fake book to me is just, that's all it is. It's fake, right? Yeah, there, there's nothing in there. there. There's no vindication of that, right? And, and just throwing shit up on the networks. Uh, and, and I like, again, uh, the dinosaur in me likes these uh, notions. I heard your your previous uh, thing about uh, you know uh, blockchains and this NFTs, right? It's like non fungible. Uh, what is it? Not a non-fungible token are we going to have a claude belil original be yeah is it going to be produced as an nft are you going to are you going to go into that with your art yeah you know what i call an nft (laughs) eh? a key right that's what a key is for god's sakes we've always called we've always had nfts right keys right and uh, what's a key for for an artist when you uh, recall uh the discussion with uh, nfts should be uh, what are you actually buying? Because right? you're not buying the copyright. The droit d'auteur remains no. with the artist always, right? The same as any work of art, right? You never, you never get. So all you're getting is this a key which will open a box somewhere, which is on somebody's computer out in the cloud somewhere, right? Which will allow you to see this image in a manner that's all of these other little peons along the way on their computers will verify that your key is the right key and that you own the copy of the, the image in the, in that box. Right. So like it's, it's the first attempt by, by very clever people to take a non durable good, which is basically computer information a bunch of zeros and ones that arranged in the right way will create an image that you know let's say of a vase you know i could take that charcoal uh vase that you showed me that jug and i can rearrange it in computer code and then the problem is as the artist well if your art only exists as zeros and ones i make a bajillion copies so basically the nutshell is it's like a jpeg but less useful. <laughs> well, they're they're putting everything in these little uh, virtual boxes now, right? They're putting music, they're putting albums, they're putting you know all kinds of stuff. It's just it's it's just another way of accumulating uh, stuff in a capitalist society, right? And the fad is with that currently. Is it going to be there for a long time of course right because you need some kind of uh code system in order to be able to say who owns what on the in the digital world but is it worth anything if the only way you can see it is with a computer so you have to have a wall screen on your on your uh wall in order to be able to see what it is you now own um, and you have to keep feeding it electricity and 
otherwise it not, it, it won't show up, right? You've lost whatever you've got. The, the I think the the systems have to be refined a little bit because if there's anything uh, problematic with all of this blockchain based activity is that it's gobbling up a huge amount of energy right all of these computer systems yep. out there they're like you know i forget what the estimates were but it's like powering up the city of new york right now in order to keep all the- no hong kong uh, okay they said that bitcoin bitcoin alone uses the same amount of electricity as hong kong and i had a friend Uh, Keith Galbraith recently described it this way to me. He's like, imagine Bitcoin. Imagine, imagine if you left your car running long enough, enough that someone, someone on the, the internet, internet would send you send black, black tar, tar heroin, heroin mail. mail. And it's like, and when, it's you, like when you put it that way, that way it, does it does sound like sound a pretty, like a pretty ridiculous, ridiculous concept, concept right? right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't know. What's the point? Again, the dinosaur doesn't see... Uh, the longevity <laughs> it it being able to say okay you know I, I've now what I've drawn is now up on a digital image and that's where it'll reside and I'll tear up the actual physical copy uh, or I'll just work with a tablet and there it, I, there is great works of art right doing being done uh, digitally only. Right? There's phenomenal stuff. Is it any different than what uh, uh, is being done on canvas or paper or in sculpture or any other medium that an artist is doing? Uh, who knows, right? It's artistic work. If if somebody is willing to pay for it, great, right? Like, who am I? Uh, the the worth of anything is what somebody is willing to pay for it, right? Any any paper or digital or whatever, right? As long as somebody's willing to pay for it. I mean, then. I mean that's that's one view of it. I mean, there is that sort of that materialistic view. I don't know. I maybe I'm just becoming a shaman here in my basement these days. But I'd like to think that everything has an intrinsic value, whether or not somebody is. Uh, is is willing to pay for it and that's kind of where we get with digital art which is really interesting because it's like okay if not nfts then what i sponsor a couple of web comic artists on patreon that i really like i give them you know two bucks a month and then they make web comics that everybody gets to see for free so i guess for a lot of artists that is the concern right the concern is how do I how do I monetize this because I can't live for free if I want to pursue my art full time and maybe even if they happen to be independently wealthy or whatever it's a situation where like you said before if somebody's not paying for this jpeg which I've now created as an nft you know am I really an artist or am I just a dilettante you know making stuff on my computer so maybe it's a little bit of that kind of psychological thing too <sighs> And, and again, uh, you know, I, I, all, all, all good works, in, in my view, are not being done for the masses. And if, if you, if the good works of art, the ones that have lasted through the ages, have always been done for the artist himself. Right? Vermeer didn't paint for anybody else. The Da Vinci's Mona Lisa 
Uh, he kept it with him for over 15 years. He worked on it for over 15 years. He died with it. Uh, it wasn't done for anybody else. He, it was his painting. It was his, his uh, uh, jacon. It was his, it was the lady that he kept, you know, with himself. You don't do stuff uh, because you're, you're getting nickels and dimes on, on Patreon. And so you're throwing it out there. Sure, sure. That is a business. And you know, that is, is stuff that people can do. And I, and I'm not denigrating it, but I'm just saying, if you have art in you, it'll come out and it'll come out in a way that right. you love it. You love doing what you're doing. Right. And you want to learn about it and you want to experiment with it and you want to grow with it. I guess the fortunate thing for Leonardo da Vinci was that he was close friends with like the King of France. And I think he got commissions from, you know, the Pope and the Medici's and, you know, people like that. So, you know, I guess what would be the equivalent today that, you know, you could pursue your passion if like Jeff Bezos was your personal patron or something like that. So, I mean, you know, it, I, I hate it when it boils down to money, but it always seems to boil down to money. <laughs> and, and he was and he wasn't right because he did have to submit commissions and he did have to fight for those commissions and, and you know he, he wasn't living by his paintings uh because he had to invent all kinds of other shit you know how to dam up rivers and uh, how to build tunnels to destroy forts and blah 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 right so he was he sold himself as an engineer <laughs> those are all kinds of things that he would try to do in order to because in those days remember uh, it's not as simple as today uh they didn't even you know Paint didn't come in a tube, well, in a metal tube. They used to grind whatever material was. So blue came from lapis lazuli from Afghanistan and was was came overseas. So it was blue ultramar. That's the name of the color. The rock had to be ground. And you just don't grind. I don't know if you've ever seen a big chunk of lapis lazuli. There's a whole bunch of shit no. inside of it, right? With their veins of blue, but there's a whole bunch of shit inside of it. And it's like any raw material, you know, like gold or anything, right? You have to grind it and wash it and purify it and boil it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you have to have artisans and not artisans but uh, as, uh you know people in your workshop grinding away that stuff right one artist yeah, i yeah. read somewhere he wouldn't touch the paint unless it had been ground for 20 years 20 freaking years to grind so i, I forget whether it was rocks or or stales or you know whatever right uh, and then once once it was there it had to be mixed up with the oils right and the oils it came from nuts and then nuts had to be ground somewhere and you know created the oil had to be created so you had to have particular oil mixed in with your particular grinds and then how do you carry this stuff around right well then you get a pig gut right <laughs> like sausages nowadays and you would fill those pig guts with with whatever your your little paint that you had right and so you could keep it for a few days or weeks or or whatever now all of those assistants and and workshops and everything in order to create costs freaking a lot of money 
right? Even in those days, you still had to feed them and lodge them and, you know, had have to have room for them. And then if you if you read the uh, Da Vinci stories, right, he traveled around. So imagine packing all of this stuff up on donkey back or mule back or, or horseback or wagons and whatever, because he had to run away from a number of places because of the King of France and the Italian wars and, uh, you know, all of them. So it was like, no, it, he was not a rich man <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. He did, you know, die in a nice uh, manner that the King of France had, had uh, you know, allowed him to die in. But <laughs> it was like, holy smokes. So if it wasn't for his very nice... Uh, friends or you know mates uh, that he had with him to 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 handle all of his affairs to go buy his stuff right because he was a very uh, uh flamboyant character right and, and had to have all of these colorful garments on uh to wear and stuff and it was just nah Eh, anyways, I don't know why I got started on all this, but it was I, like I love it. I'm I'm very happy for the rant. I'm glad that we did it. Um, I'm mindful of the time too because I think you're going straight into an art class right after this. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to disabuse myself. But I think we got two wonderful takeaways to kind of round up our chat. Is that one? Even Leonardo da Vinci had a daytime job. So who the hell are you? And then two, I, I've never been so glad that I can just walk into Wallach's and not have to, like, grind down stones and stuff them in pig gut. Yes, we have it so easy. Life is very good, Antonio. If there's a, if there's a takeaway, it is, you know, we are so fortunate. Um, plan, plan your retirement, plan whatever you can. Uh, make sure your your boys are happy. You know, take care of your grandfather. Uh, you know, it's like, and yep, yep. if you and think about, you know, like when do you when do you want to retire? You know, like when you're fifty five. Honestly, Freedom Thirty Five was my goal, and that's August. So I don't know if that's going to be happening or not. Well, uh, 35 is the new 50 or whatever. So. Sure. We're, we're aging terribly during pandemic times. Uh, no, it, it's, it's a very, it, it goes by so fast. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 it sees the day basically, you know, carpe diem, whatever, whatever happens, uh, make sure that you are doing things that you like to do that you're learning by doing it, that, you know, continue. And, um, you know, we have to have more conversations because, you know, I, I, I want to pick your brain as to what do you do when you want to buy a piece of art? Like what, what what's going through your head uh, when you're considering uh, buying a piece of art, right? What, what color, so when I buy pieces, when I buy pieces of art, I, I go to the art sale at the at the Walkley Arena and I say, well, this will look good in the living room. It matches the couch. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, 
And the worst part is I'm not even joking. That's literally how we did it when we decorated my apartment. <laughs> uh, highly discriminative acquirer of art. <laughs> okay. So, so that conversation was pretty short. Well, and then and then the other pieces of art are the ones that my grandfather painted. And I, he's, I have a whole bunch of his art here in the house. I have landscape paintings that he's done. He works mostly in oil and oil-based pastel. So, you know, I, uh, at one point post-pandemic, maybe we have to have you over and kind of, you can sort of see the stuff he does. He's very much a landscape painter. And, uh, you know, that's very easy because, you know, with his work, I, uh, you know, I, I always make sure to find a place for it because it really does mean a lot that it's something he made himself and I can really, uh, you know, appreciate it on that level. But, but besides that, I mean, any art that I've purchased myself, I mean, it really, it comes down to something so incredibly crass that, you know, people are like, wow, you studied music and yet you're such a Philistine. So maybe, maybe in fact, the conversation will be a lot longer so that I can instill in you some decision-making that may, uh, A, support your local artist, uh, B, give you satisfaction, uh, you know, every time you look at it because it looks a little different, uh, you know, because it, it has uh, some, some kind of intrinsic um, harmony in there that, that resonates within you. Um, see that uh, it's something also that can be, uh, uh, how should I say, uh, that you'd be happy to leave to your twins, <laughs> or at least one of the yep. twins, right? <laughs> I had right. two boys. One was more uh, uh, artistic than the other. The other was more sports-oriented uh, than, the, than the other. So, you know, it's like you never know what you're going to get with uh, your children, but, but God bless them, you know. What you get is just so amazing. Uh, that sure. you got to be fond of it. But think about, you know, you're not just going to leave them a can of 10W40. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm going to leave them some great, I'm going to leave them some great pieces. I have actually, just before you leave, and I'm mindful of the time. This was a, this, this was a Christmas present from Danielle Nadeau, a friend of mine from high school who became an artist. So if you listen to one of my earlier episodes, he did a walk from Montreal to Quebec City by foot. He spent two weeks doing that on the Trans-Canadian Trail, and he made this for me. And it, it hangs in my office right now. And, you know, he's, he's out, he's out walking into the mountains every other day out in Trois-Rivières where he lives now. And he's just, uh, you know, he's keep on keeping on. So, I mean, you know, they're little eclectic pieces I pick up along the way, but if you want to, if you want to instill some wisdom into me about how to step up my art game anytime, I'm, I'm always, I'm always up for a chat about that. And just like that, another episode is in the can. Thank you so much to Claude Belil. He's already sent me some of those sketches, uh, the you know, Bonhomme Sata that we're going to be working on in the near future. And I'm actually pretty excited about that. That sounds like a writing project. You know, writing a children's book, I always thought, you know, you can make money writing four or five hundred words. So it, it's intriguing. I don't know 
know how exactly that works in practice, but it's something that I'm I'm curious to look at. And that kind of segues me into what I wanted to talk about. You know, this idea that if we don't do something for money, if we don't get remunerated for it, it's just a hobby. And I sympathize with Claude because I feel that way about my music. I don't think I've made one silver dollar from my music, and I spent seven years studying it in university. So at a certain point, it's like, what are you doing with this? Do we find intrinsic value just in doing something for the sake of doing it, the passion of doing it? And how much of that is our own expectations and how much of that is society's expectations, you know? We didn't have a mortgage to pay or a car to pay or tuition to pay. Would we even really care whether or not something is an over-enthusiastic hobby or if it's something that we actually make money on? Does money somehow legitimize passion? You know, it's a philosophical discussion. I don't have the wherewithal to answer it, but I think it's an interesting question that I'd like to tease out and suss out more. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if not, well, you know, T.S. T.S.